I used to joke that in the future people would say, Do you know this vegan bakery used to be an animation studio? <laughs> I like that. This is the Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. One might assume that as a three-time Oscar nominee and one of the co-founders of the celebrated cartoon saloon, Tom Moore might be an aloof figure. Instead, he's warm and fatherly, with a rebel streak and a spirit that bucks popular trends. It's this outsider spirit and a willingness to follow their hearts that has put Cartoon Saloon on the map, and though it hasn't always been easy, the studio has flourished into a collaborative enterprise that feels more like a family than a studio. We recently caught up with Tom to talk about the early days of the studio, his passion for history, his compulsive need to draw, and his next project. Here's my conversation with Tom Moore. I want to apologize in advance because (laughs) I've been doing a lot of reading um, and Uh I know I'd seen that there had been a lot of interviews and stuff leading Uh up to like Christmas. And I'm like, is there anything left for me to ask him? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I know. Thank you for even saying that. I have never done so many interviews in my life. It's been amazing. And I'm just delighted because I feel everybody I talk to has a slightly different audience and it means more people will encounter uh, our work. So I'm happy for the opportunity. Oh, that's so awesome. And I I kind of wanted to start um, at the beginning because Mm -hmm. one of the things that I find really interesting is that um, when, when I speak with people in every field, they kind of always maybe had an inkling of what they wanted to do when they grew up, I say in air quotes. And mm. it really seems to be true with you. I mean, it seems like you've been drawing forever. Yeah, yeah. I think I started around 1980. Um, I was born in 1977. So there you go. <laughs> and, and was animation something that you always wanted to do? Or was it maybe did you think that you were going to do something else within sort of the field of, you know, drawing, sketching, was there ever any push to maybe follow after your dad, who's an engineer? Wow, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, not that has been great because dad grew up on a farm and he became an engineer and he felt following what he wanted to do was, you know, a change from years and years and years in our family of people just being kind of married to the land. And uh, he, he always encouraged me to pursue what I wanted. And, you know, my parents saw a talent there, whether or not there was a talent, but they always encouraged me. So they were great. The only thing was, I suppose, it was a hobby that relaxed me. And I remember my mum saying, are you sure you want to lose a, a hobby? And, you know, you could you could study. So I was quite good in school. You could study something more, quote unquote, sensible. But really, they supported me that I wanted to do it. So I was very lucky. And I mean, they used to give me, dad used to give me uh, a part of working as an engineer was he was a draftsman too so he would have a lot of different paper and pens and different things in the days before CAD um, he would give me materials to draw on and even when he first got a computer to do technical drawing with I messed around with that as well so he was always very encouraging to be fair. Well that's amazing that your mom made that connection that you know drawing was something that you were doing as a hobby something that really made you happy but she was a bit concerned that you know you might lose that passion Uh, has that ever happened has it ever felt like Um, work 
drawing it's funny there's aspects of drawing like right now i thought i crave to spend a lot of time doing life drawing uh, as a break like i i kind of oscillate i wanted to be a comic book artist a little bit of rebel in me wanted to be a tattoo artist um and uh, animation always interested me um from an early age mostly for the collaboration aspect of it it's so interesting to work with other people but they become exhausting for different reasons like animation is exhausting um, because of the collaboration, because of the human level, because of the time it takes and the scale of the projects, you can find yourself more a manager than an artist sometimes. And then on the other side, working in comics is quite lonely and you end up um, just resenting the drawing table because you're just chained to it all day. <laughs> um, and so then I said, I know what I'd like to do. I'd like to take a break and just focus on life drawing. And that's what I've basically been doing. But now that I have a teacher, an amazing teacher, Carl Ganass, and he gives me homework and feedback, I'm like, dang it, now, I, now it feels like work as well. I used to just enjoy life drawing and now I'm, well, I'm committed to getting better, so I need feedback, but feedback also stings, you know. Oh, it's funny. You jumped to that, and I, I was going to ask this later, but we might as well talk about it now. Because uh -huh. um, I, I do follow you on Instagram, and I love seeing um, all of your sketching, and it, it seems like you're sketching all the time. Well, so right now I'm sketching. <laughs> yeah, so is it is it something that you do just unconsciously? You always just feel like you need to be doodling, or is it something that you kind of sit down and think, okay, at this point I'm going to do some sketching because it's, you know improving or is it like is it just like a conscious or unconscious thing how does that work for you it's pretty compulsive i think like i usually draw everybody at meetings and one of the benefits of zoom is i just draw everybody on zoom if we'd been doing a video part of this i'd probably be drawing you but um i've actually found that the pandemic i've been drawing a little bit more because um in work i would be drawing like for work, either drawing over other people's work or drawing storyboards or doing a piece of animation. And then when I come home, I'd sort of switch off. Whereas this last year, it's been mostly, you know, press, marketing and meetings about new projects. And so that's allowed me to draw a lot more just for myself. And it's weird. I, I just, just drawing more even than when I have to draw. It's weird. Once it becomes homework, I put it off. My wife laughs at me. Like when a teacher gave me anatomy homework and she was saying like, every day you say you're going to do your homework and you've drawn everything except your homework. You know? <laughs> it's like a part of our nature to procrastinate. Why? You know, um, and if, I, if it hadn't been given to me as homework, I'd quite happily draw skeletons and muscles and stuff. But <laughs> because I have to do it for homework, I draw everything else. Um, I, I wanted to jump back to kind of um, the career trajectory. And so, you know, you realize that you're going to, you want to do this and you go to school for animation. But um, it seems that while everybody else was kind of leaning towards the computer graphics side, you kind of doubled down on traditional animation. What was it about that that kind of drew you more than like the new fancy shiny thing? The, I was a bit intimidated by computers because um, the opportunities were there and people were retraining in computers and I felt I still hadn't quite explored everything I wanted to do with drawing. I went to classical animation school because I wanted to learn to draw really well and to get better at drawing and I felt I was only beginning when we qualified, you know. And I sort of had a sense that hand-drawn animation was something we could do. I'd been a member of Young Irish Filmmakers, and so I'd been involved in different productions and stuff as a, as a teenager. And the thing I loved about hand-drawn animation was 
it was kind of as good as you could draw. You weren't relying on computers. You weren't relying particularly on actors, at least in front of the screen. Maybe you needed voice actors. But basically, you could do something as well as you could draw. And it sort of felt that with limited budgets and small team, we could do something with hand-drawn that wouldn't look cheap, would actually look different and interesting. Whereas if we tried to compete in CG, you would have always looked less than Pixar or someone with the latest technology and the bigger budgets, you know. And college was a really uh, formative uh, place for you in that that's also where you met um, some of your partners where who you started Cartoon Saloon with. Yeah, Ross Stewart, who co-directed Wolfwalkers with me, I, I met in school and we were in Young Irish Filmmakers together. And then um, in Ballyferma College in Dublin, I met Nora and Paul. And actually, some more people are working with us in the studio, like Fabian Erlinghauser and Jeremy Purcell. Jeremy's directing the Puff and Rock feature film. Fabian was directing the and created Dorg Van Dango for Nickelodeon. So there's a whole gang of us that went to college together that kind of managed to make a career working together. Were you guys drawn to each other right from the get-go? I'm, I'm just kind of curious if you were like this, this band of animators that are like, no CG, we're going, we're sticking to the old stuff. Isn't that funny? I mean, yes and no. Like, looking back, there was a little gang of us, and some of it was pure happenstance. Like, Nora lived across the road from me in, like, you know, student flat, and I had a small child pretty young, and so I didn't really do much going out and stuff, so our social life was pretty much hanging out, you know, with people close by and stuff. We didn't have much money either, so Nora and her husband, who was a big part of the studio early on, who's a great painter, and yeah, Paul just lived up the road from me, so we were all very close-knit just as friends anyway and then as Paul and I started taking on um, freelance jobs it was obvious that we'd work with Nora and Ross and you know all our kind of friend group as well you know but it's hard to say I think Aidan Hart and I Aidan's like a sculptor now but he was part of the studio very early on and uh, we were both from Kilkenny and we both were quite idealistic about hand-drawn animation in that naive young way we loved Richard Williams um, who was this kind of animator's animator he'd done pink panther and roger rabbit but basically he was famous for spending 25 years working on this masterpiece that he never finished and the academy have all the drawings in their archive and i went to see them a few years ago and like he just was this kind of um every time he spoke about animation he spoke about it in terms of you know it could be like rembrandt or he spoke about in terms of art and he talked about hand-drawn animation having a a connection back as far as the cave paintings and stuff so yeah in a kind of idealistic way we felt like that but we also loved the cg stuff and there was definitely like i have friends who went and worked in all the big studios and stuff over there and they did beautiful stuff and there was definitely a sense that maybe at some point once we were finished with what we were doing ourselves independently we'd go and get you know real jobs in pixar or something and more than once i considered applying to be a storyboarder or something in pixar or one of the big studios um, but I've just been lucky that I've never actually had to, and I've been able to keep going. <laughs> so, um, uh, you guys, can, can you talk a little bit about the sort of formation of Cartoon Saloon and the the motivation to start a studio to to create your first project? Yeah, and there were two things that kind of came together. Aidan and I, and Ross Stewart, and a few more had wanted to make a feature, an Irish um, 
inspired by Irish history and art, kind of as a response to what Richard Williams was doing with The Thief and the Cobbler with Persian art. And also the fact that, you know, we were seeing Miyazaki doing things like Princess Mononoke in the late 90s and Disney were doing Mulan. And it seemed like uh, animated features based on Irish folklore were eventually going to come around and we kind of wanted to do that first. <laughs> and we were very naive and very, we were in 22 and, and very you know, sort of um, had bigger ideas than sense. And uh, thankfully, Mike Kelly and Young Irish Filmmakers was a similar dreamer to us. And because he'd known us since we were teenagers, he let us have some space for free and even helped us get a grant to kind of fund making a trailer um, to kind of show what we had in mind and work on a script. And at the same time, Paul and I had been doing jobs as Cartoon Saloon, which wasn't the name we picked for posterity. It was a name we picked because it rhymed and sounded kind of funny. And we were using it to do small freelance jobs. And that was back in like 2000. And that was the first internet boom. So the fact that we were in a small town in Kilkenny, but we had internet access meant we were doing jobs for companies in California and all over the world. And so just gradually Cartoon Saloon, which was sort of paying for a little extra gig money, became the main focus of the studio. And slowly it evolved from being like, Young Irish filmmakers kind of funding a kind of youth work scheme to being a real company. But um, it was very gradual and there was never, I couldn't tell you the moment it stopped being one and started being the other, except that there was a certain point around 2005 when we moved out of the premises that Young Irish filmmakers had into our own building. And I remember at that moment feeling like I was leaving home and growing up and had to like start being <laughs> taking life more seriously or something. <laughs> Um, I think it's so one of the things that I've always loved about the work that you guys do is that it has a very like the fact that you're um, telling stories of Irish folklore and, and keeping that tradition alive and your films are also available in Irish is it, to me it's it's so heartwarming to see a young young people and young studio being so proud and so willing to share their culture with the rest of the world in a, a really unique and sensitive way. And it's not something that you see all that often. And I'm kind of curious about how, where that love for history and, and, and started and, and how that kind of became not really the driving force, but in a way, kind of the driving force of the studio as well. Because, I mean, you've now made a trilogy of films um, sort of steeped in Irish folklore. And it's, to me, when I look at anything that's done by Cartoon Saloon, there's a very unique approach and style to it that's like instantly reminiscent of Ireland. And I don't know why, because <laughs> I'm not Irish, but <laughs> there's just like this feeling of um, a tradition and a history that's just seeped into everything that you guys do. And I would say with a caveat that that's not necessarily everyone in the studio's focus. We are all very dedicated to hand-drawn animation and dedicated to like authentic storytelling. But I think it was just me who really focused on that. And that was coming from like a personal place. And Ross as well, like Ross, Ross grew up in Kilkenny as well. And you grow up in Kilkenny and it's a medieval city and you're surrounded by all the history, you know. And then again, going back to Young Irish Filmmakers, that's where we kind of learned that a lot of the popular culture we were digesting, like Star Wars or comic books or whatever, actually owed a lot to mythology, you know, owed a lot to the to the folklore. And then the Irish folklore was something that we were rediscovering, I suppose, during the Celtic Tiger, but we were also a bit, I was a bit conscious that it was becoming commercialized. And my 
my son was growing up in a kind of strange globalized Ireland that was suddenly rich and rushing towards a kind of global culture. And then all the folklore and stuff and the stories and the music and everything was kind of being packaged up for tourists, you know, and wasn't really seen as part of our culture. So it was kind of like, personally for me, I wanted to reinvent it for his generation and maybe the next generation will do it again, but in video games or something, I don't know, but it just felt like a nice thing to kind of, and it was such a rich well to tap into and all. And I think as well, these things lead one onto the other. Like when we were working on Secret of Kells, that's when I got the idea for Song of the Sea. And while I was working on Song of the Sea, I felt like everything I'd learned on Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, I really wanted to put into a, a final piece. And that's why I asked Ross to co-direct uh, Wolfwalkers with me. But I also feel very free now having completed that trilogy that, you know, Nora's going to make movies, Louise is making movies, Paul is developing a movie and they're they're able to have their own voice, you know, and whatever they want to explore and whatever interests them, they will explore. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe Ireland will be part of that, maybe not. You touch on a couple of things that I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit more. And the first is this idea that you have all this this amazing talent within the studio and you're all creating, everybody sort of has a voice to create their own stories and their own ideas. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of, I know when the studio started, it was kind of pitched as a, as a cooperative yeah. and now it's turned into more of like a traditional type studio in a way, but in another mm -hmm. way, it's still very much holding on to that uh, cooperative ideal by, you know, uh, bringing in new talent and encouraging that new talent to develop their own voices. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the transition and, and keeping the vision and the individuality of the creator alive? Wow. Yeah. And I mean, that is the challenge. And I mean, I could see myself never making another movie and just spending all my time helping the new directors and focusing on joining everything up because we went from being you know for a long time we were like 20 30 people and now there's like i don't know a couple of hundred people and especially in the pandemic everything spread out so that is the real challenge and also asking ourselves all the que questions like okay there's my personal vision of what i want to do but also where does it intersect what everyone else wants to do how much commonality do we kind of want to not impose but encourage or how much do we want people to just go and do whatever they want and have a totally different voice from project to project? So those are questions we continually ask ourselves. But the projects are more about who's making them and who's developing them than the idea. Like there's loads of ideas out in the world, but I, from my own experience, I rather develop projects with people that are I want to continue working with, whether they're inside the studio or coming from outside. It's about the relationship because it just takes so long. I think that's a big thing. I think hand-drawn is something that we're all pretty passionate about, you know, that workshop environment where we feel like we're all developing and learning as artists all the time. So that's another thing that I think is common to our projects and why we take on projects or not. But we're still learning. We're sort of learning everything. Like, how is it going to be to be a studio that it isn't me or Nora directing everything? We're still in that process of transition and growth, you know. It's so refreshing to hear somebody that's leading a group, another group of people 
be so selfless about the process <laughs> and so sharing. It's not something that you, that you see very often, but it feels so authentic to the work that you guys do. Right. Um, do, do you do any, like, I'm curious about how you sort of uh, bring in new talent. Is Are you actively always looking for new people? Do you have like um, outreach programs to students that are interested in animation? Because it seems to me like one of the big parts of Cartoon Saloon and not knowing how it operates on a day-to-day basis feels like, it's very much about sort of bringing up others and, and giving people opportunities to, to to discover their passion for animation. Yeah, and that's been the interesting thing because it's the space that we benefited from and the space that we created and uh, we inherited from uh, young Irish filmmakers and that kind of attitude of, you know, not needing permission to make something and, you know, allowing people to experiment. That's, you know, the kind of workshop environment that we love and try to encourage that's that's really the interesting and challenging thing and we find people from everywhere i mean we've a a producer who's working with us at the moment and she created her own she's spanish and she created her own story set in spain and she's making it into a series she was an optician first you know and i think this kind of says something that we have people who grew up like me just always wanting to be cartoonists and always working in cartoons and immersed in it and we have young people who even were inspired by our first movies to go into animation, which makes us feel ancient. But we people like that, and then we people who come from completely left of field from completely other careers and they transition in. And it really just depends on the person and the timing. But one thing that's always been a big part of the studio is kind of when college students come and spend a couple of months on the internships working with us, a lot of our staff came from that route. Um, and I have a kind of ambivalent feeling about internship because I don't like the idea that young people work for free I always want to make sure they're getting something of value out of it so we're quite careful about who we pick for internships but we have a pretty high hit rate of the people who come for internships staying on and becoming part of at least one or more productions with us as a as sometimes a fairly senior artist like Maria Pereja came in um, straight after college and she ended up being kind of co-art director to Ross and myself on Wolfwalkers. And that's not an atypical story. So I, I, there's something about that people coming in who have the right sensibility and they're kind of like bringing some freshness and new ideas that is really welcomed all the time. And it's there's a bit of a challenge to always make sure that that doesn't seem unfair to the more senior people who've been with us a long time. But the right people welcome it, I think. You know, people who are starting to protect their position are kind of not the kind of people we want to be working with. You know, we want people who are excited by, oh, look how this person draws or look what this person does or look what this person's bringing rather than, oh, they're going to take my spot. And that's the challenge a bit, you know, as we get bigger. Mm-hmm. I- I'm curious, there seems to be a real sense of um, community and friendship and almost family within the yeah. studio ecosystem. How do you keep that alive in a time like this where, you know, you can't really meet in person and oh, yeah. endless Zoom meetings can get really oh, draining yeah. at times? It's been so hard. And I used to joke because um, I'm vegan and not everyone's vegan, but everyone is so into like, you know, groups like environmental work planting gardens and a lot of times people bring in you know uh, cakes and and bake vegan cookies and stuff for uh, even just to share with the crew back in the day when we were all in studio and sometimes it was you know to raise money for a certain charity they'd have a bake sale and I used to joke that in the future people would say you know this vegan bakery used to be an animation studio (laughs) and that was really you know that was all it was like it was really doing every night there were people staying late to play Dungeons and Dragons together and I think because we're in a small town 
in the middle of Ireland. We're not in a main city. A lot of people are attracted to working here with us, are happy to do quite kind of cozy activities and they're happy to hang out together. And, you know, whether it's going to the pub together or whether it's, you know, doing game nights or movie nights or planting gardens together or going on hikes or whatever, there's a real community um, feeling that's kind of persisted just from us being so self-selected and a little bit isolated, you know, in a small town. But since the pandemic, it's been a challenge. Like we've been doing all this stuff like, I've tried to be the creative tissue between the projects by like having these creative cafes where I ask, you know, different groups of the artists from all the different projects to just come on with a cup of coffee with me um, for an hour or two. And I just try and get them talking and chatting and um, and then just see what cross pollination can happen and make sure that they're not becoming several little tiny studios in each production, but that everyone still feels part of the same studio. But it's been hard. And there's been all these kind of watch parties for the different awards. And we send everybody a pizza and cocktails. And, you know, it's been great for even Kilkenny, like the local businesses in Kilkenny have been great because they're closed too. So we often get them to, you know, do dinner deliveries and we do Zoom dinners and things like that for the awards. But, yeah, it's tough. I think our studio particularly thrives on everyone being together. And so it's it's been a bit hard to keep the keep the energy but the work has been good people have been doing really good work um but i do feel there's probably more burnout behind the scenes and there's probably more i think there's a big need for people to get out of lockdown and get back together soon because we've done it for a year and a half now and we've done well but i don't think we'd want to do it forever you sound like the the studio dad that's keeping everybody <laughs> like that. Maybe, yeah, maybe the studio grandpa. <laughs> oh no, no. Um, I'm curious about now that you know we talked a little bit about how you sort of wrapped up this trilogy of films, um, and how one kind of had kind of fed the the next project. Um, how does that kind of start looking for you when you start thinking about creating? Uh, your next thing, whatever it might be. Does it start with an idea? Do you start with some research? Is it sometimes based on something you saw or read? I'm just kind of curious about how you start developing concepts and how those kind of grow. And when do you know that something is ready to sort of oh. go into the next step of production? Oh. oh, yeah, it's so hard. And I mean, for me, this is the first time I've taken a break and I'm really just trying to step back and do the create the studio grandpa stuff or whatever and draw and see what comes next. Cause I have a lot of ideas where to go next, but I don't want to force it. But before that, it was really odd. They were always different. I mean, song of the sea came from an experience like where I was with my son then in the West of Ireland and we saw seals that had been killed by fishermen. And it just set off a chain of conversations that led to Ross Stewart giving me a book called the people of the sea. And me just thinking a lot about how the kind of commercialization of like the fishing fishermen used to tell stories that seals were these like sacred creatures that could be the souls of people who were lost at sea or they could be selkies. But now they've become so harried by commercialism that they see them as pests that are eating some of their catch because the catch has a value. And it was just like a whole that just tapped into a whole lot of melancholy I was feeling at the time. And then Song of the Sea kind of evolved in my head while I was working on Secret of Kells. And then when I brought Will Collins in as a screenwriter, he sort of helped me kind of 
sculpted. But then way less organic in a weird way was Wolfwalkers. Ross and I just sat down at lunch and we made a list of things we really cared about and things we really hated. And we sort of said, if we put those all together, we'll have a lot of natural conflict and we'll have an idea. And it was an idea that was literally formed because we wanted to find a vehicle for themes and artistic techniques we wanted to to try and show that we'd learned over the course of the previous movie. So it was a much more conscious decision to come up with that idea. It didn't just sort of trickle in like the previous ones. So yeah, I don't know. It's hard to know. And sometimes people in the studio pitch us stuff and it can be awkward and hard to know, is this something? And it, it really comes down to a whole mix of things. And the criteria can be superficial sometimes, but you try to make the criteria reasonably consistent to be fair. But it is a sort of a strange alchemy of the person and how you feel a project will fit with the with the studio and the people in the studio. Um, going back to the, the, the way that you sort of bring stories together, one of the things that's really amazing about the work that you guys do across all of your films is that they, they tackle um, really big and important themes and ideas, but you don't shy away from the difficult conversations. Like you don't, you, you kind of sit, the, 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 the stories all kind of sit with um, these big concepts in a way that's really um, amazing for young children. Like I have a four-year-old niece who we've shown your films to, and she always, it's like the first thing she starts, she starts talking right at the beginning. Why are they doing this? What's yeah. this? Why is this happening? And it's not something that she does when we watch some other animated films. And I, I can't, I haven't quite been able to, focus on what it is about about cartoon saloons films but there seems to be just like a, a the the way that you guys handle your storytelling asks more of your viewers it, it, it kind of engages in a, a way that other films don't is that a conscious thing how do you guys kind of come to a find like that sweet spot of where you know you're not kind of going overboard with maybe a theme that might be too difficult for children or is it just kind of you play it by ear I'm curious about how you kind of find that mix it's such a process and I think it's different for everyone I mean in some ways Nora is the kind of secret weapon because she's um she's really good on story and I and a lot of the time I I rely on her to make sure we're not wandering into tropes or cliche. But then on the other hand, sometimes I have to ignore her notes and kind of say, no, I don't want to go that way. I want to go my own way. And it's really hard. It's really a difficult one. I mean, one thing we do a lot, I like to do a lot is because we're not obliged to take notes from anyone outside is I like to ask, you know, friends in the industry for feedback. And then I like to show it to kids. Like my wife teaches in a, the Irish language primary school. And all my movies I've shown to her, like seven or eight year old kids in her class at a very early rough stage and see where they res- what they respond to. But you definitely want to offer something more than just um, a, a, like you're making it something independent and it takes a long time. It has to be quite authentic. It has to be quite um, has to be something that is worth all the blood, sweat and tears of making a movie on a you know, a modest budget in a, in a small studio in the Midlands of Ireland, as opposed to living it up in LA or something, you know. So, yeah, there's something about them. Yeah, and it's, you know, Will Collins, the screenwriter, talks about painful truth. He always looks for what's the painful truth at the heart of a, a story or an idea that makes you want to tell it. Yeah, and Nora talks a lot about making sure it's authentic and it's coming from a place that 
um, you know, we used to joke, what is it? You want to make something intelligent and sophisticated enough for kids, but simple enough for adults to enjoy as well. <laughs> the truth is right there. That's the secret sauce, I think. Um, I'm curious about, you know, you're kind of sort of on break at the moment, but, but do, do, do you, do you, are you looking forward to creating a, a new film? Is there something that's kind of maybe in the back of your mind that's starting to form as a new project? Yeah. Well, oh yeah. I know the sort of themes and stuff I want to explore. I mean, both artistically, I want to go deep, deeper into, into drawn animation. Um, and also, yeah there's a lot a lot of themes but i don't have the actual story yet and i am more and more interested in how irish cultures have interacted with people all over the world because we're like a tiny island and yet the fact that we've immigrated and so many people have emigrated i'm so curious about how our worldview and belief system has either tallied with or been in contrast to the people that we've encountered all around the world. So there's stories in there I know for sure, but I'm just still thinking how I get in at it. And I'm even not sure about movies anymore because the thing about movies is they're kind of, they're kind of like short stories. And often I have an idea for a novel and I have to sort of keep on chipping away at it until I have a short story. But maybe now with all these streamers and stuff, there's a way to tell like a bigger story that explores themes in a more nuanced way by stretching it over several episodes or something. So I don't know. Um, you've talked a little bit about your veganism and I know that um, the, the, there's a, a pub in Kilkenny that ha- kind of has the cartoon saloon menu because there are so many. <laughs> I, I read that and I thought that that was kind of amazing. Um, and, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that part of your life because it seems like you started, like you've been an advocate from a young age. Um, what was it yeah. that kind of, piqued your interest in that what did you see around you that kind of made you think more consciously about you know uh, rights and the environment and you know caring for animals what what was it it is an interesting thing and it was one of those things where it was quite naive when I was a young kid like my grandparents had a farm that I suppose now would be the kind of farm I wish all farms were um but back then it was, you know, it was a nice, small, a very small holding, almost like a hobby farm compared to, you know, farms now. But um, I just made a connection. I was really young and my uncle asked me to pick a chicken. I thought he was saying pick out like a pet and then he strangled it in front of me. And so that was like a horrific connection that I'd never made at that age. And I, I just stopped eating meat then. And then um, when my wife is vegetarian, I met Ross, who's my one of my closest friends, is vegetarian and vegan now. And um, it just grew. Like over the years, it connected to so many more things. It went from being quite a childlike, anthropomorphic, I don't want to eat animals, to seeing the interconnection between environmental destruction and the biosphere and all the kind of things that I feel like we're getting out of whack with as a society and how we've lost a, a sense of connection to, you know, just sentient beings that we share the planet with. They're either commodities or they're pets, but it just seems like there's a sickness in that that needs to be sort of redressed almost on a spiritual level. So, yeah, it just I kept on being more and more reasons to stay vegan once I changed, once I went that way and once I kind of made that leap, that paradigm shift. Um and I got I got more and less interested in it over the years, but I think over the last ten years or so, just the links between that and environmental destruction, and um, you know even the pandemics and everything, 
just made me more sure that it was something that I wanted to raise the wanted to raise the, the signal off as much as I could, whatever platform I have. And that's that kind of um, not maybe not directly, but it also does play an impact in some of the stories that you tell, which have a very um, like they all kind of have a tie to to nature. Mm. Um, they're based in history, but there is this idea that you have to sort of nurture um, the the nature around you and the animals around you, and that there's more yeah. of a connection between humanity and 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 the the world outside. Yeah, and to be clear, I think veganism is a is a is a solution to an illness in a society that's quite disconnected from nature. I would never imagine it was a state of nature or that like indigenous people who were able to honor like a kind of, you know, like a kind of a, a spiritual connection to the animals that they're hunting and everything should be vegan. I, I don't think of it like that. I just think of it that we've disconnected so much from animals and speciesism has crept so much into our way of looking at the world that it's it's the only recourse now at this at this late stage that we're so disconnected and the way we live is so out of whack with nature and the way we farm is so out of whack with nature that it's almost impossible to 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 just kind of mediate it back i know everyone likes the idea of sustainable animal agriculture but it seems incompatible with our way of life and our civilization so it's really difficult but it's not what i'm speaking about as much in the movies i don't want to be like a vegan preacher or something except in something like the thing we did for Greenpeace which was like mm -hmm. obviously a, a piece like that no in general I sort of want to speak to just that connection with nature that that nature is that kind of um that we're part of it and not separate from it and that's what I think is interesting about the folklore it's always like I've been reading a lot of Native American folklore and stuff lately and I read a lovely book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer and that's kind of my spirituality now the idea that we are there's a non-dual relationship between us and nature and the idea that we're somehow in charge of nature or have dominion over nature and must decide what to do or even the arrogance that we must protect nature I think is is part of the problem I think we need to see that we're connected to it and we're killing ourselves when we're killing the biosphere you know Sorry to get so serious there. No, well, no, no, no. It's it's well, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to ask about it because I know it's something that you're really passionate about and which I think is really, really important. And it's amazing to have somebody of your stature talking about uh, some of these issues that really deserve and require uh, more attention. Hmm. I mean, like I you mean, say, we're not we're not in the best place right now. So yeah, that's what I think. Like you know, I mean, if we could, I mean, I mean, yeah, if we could just wake up to the fact that we're so connected to nature. And that we could wake up to the fact that speciesism is just as interconnected to all the other problems we exist. The idea that anything is worth less than anything else or that we don't have to have respect for anything it would help a lot. Because that was one of the themes of Wolfwalkers. Like Ireland was called Wolfland back then and Irish people were associated with the wolves as a way to show them more as vermin or as savages or something wild that needed to be tamed by the colonizing force. And I think that sort of speciesism still continues when we when we denigrate an animal species and then use that as a way to tar a, a human population by saying, oh, they're just pigs or they're just whatever. Um, I think it's a, I think it's kind of like a deep interconnected way of seeing the world that um, we need to undo a little bit if we're going to have any, I, I don't know, if we're going to have any change.
I kind of wanted to close uh, with uh, asking you about the next generation of animators and creators. And if you have any um, insights and advice for somebody that, you know, might be interested in animation, but doesn't really know where to start. Yeah, I think for me, what I'm interested in, in terms of animation is the collaborative nature of it. Like when I joined Young Irish Filmmakers, I was already drawing and trying to make animation at home in my bedroom. And the technology and the equipment that we used was what I thought I was joining to get my hands on. But that actually turned out to be the least of it. I think the the fact that I learned that working with a team of people and kind of building that kind of tribe around me or wolf pack, if you will, that's what has been so special and so precious. So I think collaboration is so important. Building out trusted group around you that can give you honest feedback and that you can give feedback to and that you can collaborate on. That's been so precious in my life, just having that sort of tribe around me. Because then, you know, a company is the company you keep. And if you spend your time working on a project and you're working with good people and you're learning and you're enjoying doing it, the end product becomes less important than the process, you know. And with that, thanks so much, Tom. It's always so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. That was fun. And that was my conversation with Tom Moore. Wolfwalkers, which is co-directed by Tom and Ross Stewart, is now streaming on Apple TV+. The SparkCast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.